ladies and gentlemen. This is America's Healthcare Advocate. Broadcasting coast to coast across the USA. Your guide to protecting your personal health. Bringing you simplified answers to the complex questions surrounding healthcare. Everything from cancer to liver transplants. Nutrition. Exercise. My yoga and Pilates instructor, Dana Goodale. Mental health and even pet care. Dr. Wayne Hunthausen, Westwood Animal Hospital. Empowering you to take control of your health and wellness. My very special guest today, Grace Marie Turner, president of the Galen Institute. Welcome back, Grace Marie. Well, Carrie, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I do have to say, you are the most knowledgeable about health policy. Just superlative. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Gentlemen, 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 gentlemen. And now, America's healthcare advocate, Carrie Hall. Hello, America. Welcome to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA. Our producer today, Mr. Mark Gross. I'm your host, Carrie Hall. This is your show, America. Thank you for joining us and making us one of the most listened to talk shows throughout the United States on 200 affiliates, a little over 200 now, across the country. And today, broadcasting live from my kitchen. That's right. Our studios are closed. So Mark Gross, my producer, is working out of his home, and uh, I'm working out of my home today, and that's, uh, as we did last week on the broadcast the same way. If you want to follow us on Facebook or Instagram or the website, it's America's Healthcare Advocate, America's Healthcare Advocate, um, or you can do the Facebook at Carrie Hall, C-A-R-Y-H-A-L-L. Um, also, on the website, all of our podcasts are up there, so if you want to listen to the show again or tell somebody else about it that might be interested in it, the podcasts are on iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spreaker. So uh, lots of ways to listen to the show. Had a lot of feedback last week after the show. We got a number of people calling us, um, and I'm going to give one anecdotal uh, example here. A teacher called whose husband had been laid off from his job. She was the teacher. He wasn't. And she was concerned about health insurance and what was she going to do? You know, should she do COBRA and move everybody over to her school plan? But it was going to be very, very expensive. Um, and so we chatted about that. And Joyce Thompson from the RPS BBDI office was able to um, help her. And it, she wound up, believe it or not, getting a $1,700 subsidy um, that actually covered the cost of her health insurance on an ACA uh, plan. So it worked out very, very well. We were extremely happy to be able to help her. If you do need any help like that, uh, the number is 877-385-2224, 877-385-2224. All right, on today's show, and this is a show that took a lot of work to get done, and I want to thank the people over at St. Luke's Healthcare System, specifically Laurel Gifford, who was instrumental in pulling this together. You know, I wanted to do a show that pulled back the curtain on what's going on with providers. What are, what are they dealing with, and how, how is this all working right now? So I was able to reach out to one of our largest hospital systems here in the Kansas City Metro. I think we've got nine St. Luke's facilities in and around the Kansas City Metro. And joining me today on the broadcast is Dr. Mark Larson. He is St. Luke's Healthcare Systems Operations Section Chief and Emergency Medicine Physician. And what does that mean? It means he's the guy in charge. He's the guy that is, uh, with his team, organized their response to the COVID-19 virus and uh, is working very long hours with, with a lot of his other team.
teammates, some of whom I've spoken with, like Dr. Tracy Stevens, who you may be familiar with, who's done a number of radio shows with us. But I thought it would be very helpful and insightful for all of you to hear what the frontline medical professionals are doing in this fight against COVID-19. So, Dr. Larson, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to do this today. Happy to do, and thanks for having us. Well, it's a privilege to have you on. The first thing I want to ask you is, how are you doing, and how are your teammates doing? I know that uh, you're working very long hours. I imagine you're probably a little tired by now. Yeah, you know, it's been a, we're saying it's a marathon, not a sprint, although we've kind of started off like it's a sprint and trying to keep up that pace on a day-to-day basis. It's been a bit of a challenge, but we've got a pretty amazing team at our system level as well as each of our hospitals. So uh, we're doing well. Um, I think, uh, like I said, it's been stressful, but it's, uh, I think we put out a lot of good work in our preparation plan. You know, I, I think it's important for people in this, you know, to understand in this country the length and, and, and the risk and, and the dedication that, that providers in this country are, are showing and doing. I saw a picture of a Southwest flight out of, I think it was North Carolina or something, full of doctors and nurses flying into New York City. It was pretty remarkable. And, I, and I, Dr. Stevens told me an interesting story about the, uh, how you had converted one of your uh, cardio units into an ICU unit to expand it and given the people the option of working there or not working there. And she told me that every one of them signed up to stay and work through COVID-19. I thought that was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it's been pretty, it's been pretty impressive to see the response of both our staff and our community in terms of how we've responded to this. We've given people the option for the most part, if they are able to work in one of these units, we've given them that, that option to choose. But for most part, people have jumped it a bit. I mean, people go into medicine to help people. And over time, the healthcare profession is maybe we've seen a little bit of degradation, uh, degradation of, of how that's happened. But now I feel like more so than ever, I think that uh, that willingness to put yourself on the front line, regardless of what the risks are, uh, in order to help your fellow citizens is it's really been something that's been really neat to see. Yeah, it's front and center, and I, I think uh, it, it's quite remarkable. Let's talk a little bit about, because you're in charge of the task force. You're the guy that's, uh, that's leading it, along with all of your teammates that are working with you. But talk about, you know, when you first heard, you know, started to understand what this was going to look like. I know that you guys, I think it was on a Friday, and I don't know the exact date, but you started working all through the weekend to prepare the hospital for what you knew was coming. Talk a little bit about what that was like and, and, and what you did to organize this. Yeah, so um, we follow what's called the hospital or the healthcare incident management system or the HIC system, uh, and we've set up an incident management team both at our San Luis Health System level and like you alluded to in your introduction, San Luis Health System is a large health system, the second largest health system in the Kansas City metropolitan area. We have four acute care hospitals, four critical access hospitals, seven community hospitals, two long-term care centers, 13 uh, convenient care clinics, and two urgent cares. So, uh, and that doesn't even touch on all of our doctor's offices uh, and whatnot around our system. So, when you start looking at the response uh, and how we address each and every one of those entities, because they all have their unique challenges um, to make sure that you have a response plan for your walk-in clinics, your doctor's offices, and your ICUs, you can imagine that's a challenge. So the system looks at overall development of policy and making sure that we are uh, prepared uh, both on our supply chain, making sure that we have adequate numbers of supplies, but also in giving our individual hospitals, what we call our entities, that uh, the ability to, to develop their own plan and implement it with guidance from the system level. So 
we've been working, man, I don't even know how long. I think we've been working on this for about a month and a half in terms of developing that plan. We've had the benefit of here in the Midwest that we've been able to learn from our friends on the coast and see how it's affected them. And we've had a little bit more of a lead time. So that's enabled us to really have a very strong response plan and how we're able to uh, prepare for what we fear is coming. And you put that response plan together. Um, talk a little bit about how you've done that. Some of the things that you have shifted around, like I mentioned the fact that Dr. Stevens had said you had converted one of the cardiac units into an ICU to expand the ICU use in anticipation of these COVID-19 patients. Have you done that across the whole system or centralized it into one or two hospitals? How are most hospitals dealing with that now? Yeah, again, we're uniquely blessed. We have a lot of hospitals, which means we have a lot of beds. Uh, and we basically learned, again, from what they said on the coast. At first, they say, you should try, plan on increasing your ICU capacity by 25%, and then 50%, and then sometimes up to 100%. So at each of our hospitals, we cast them with a plan to say, how can you increase your intensive care unit volume by 50 and then up to 100%? And each of those hospitals, St. Louis Hospital, East, North, South, They've all been able to come up with a plan where they've taken existing what we call intermediate beds and increase that level of care they're able to provide in those beds in order to increase our ICU capacity. We've managed to try to have this happen, and, and our teams have been just amazing at getting this stood up. So our ICU capacities have nearly doubled across our system in order to prepare for those uh, more critical patients that may be coming. That's remarkable. So basically what you've done is you've told, you know, working with your various hospitals around the metro that they need, and I, I would assume this is typical of hospitals across the country that are responding to this, especially if they're in an urban environment that they need to double the number of ICU beds that they're going to have available for COVID-19 patients. Yeah, again, we plan for the worst and hope for the best, but we'd rather be prepared if that situation were to come to us. Um, That's happened both at the ICU level as well as our intermediate level and in our ERs as well. Okay, so you mentioned a couple of times, you know, how you've been able to learn from what's going on on the East Coast. Are you receiving data information either from CDC or from Health and Human Services or directly from other healthcare systems that that is helping you with that information? In other words, they're telling you how they see this presenting, you know, what they're doing, what's working, what's not working. Are you seeing that kind of information or is that not available to you? Yeah, you know, we get information from multiple resources. We follow the CDC's website uh, and their guidelines very closely. We also work with the uh, Missouri Hospital Association, the American uh, Hospital Association, some of our collaborative partners. So we have data that comes in from multiple sources. So we're able to learn from that and maybe and use that information as we develop our plan. That's great to hear because that means that obviously on a national basis, the American Hospital Association um, and others um, are, are um, you know, getting that data out to help you understand what's going on and then obviously help everybody from the standpoint of what works and what doesn't work, right? Correct. Yeah. And so we are able to learn from missteps that have happened around the country and hopefully not re- you know, recreate those those mistakes and, and, again, be a little bit more prepared when this does hit us. Yeah, because it's obviously, um, you know, I, I think uh, Governor Cuomo described it as, as an oncoming train and that he described it as a bullet train. And obviously, with what we see going on in New York, that was no overstatement. I don't think it was obviously clearly an issue. All right, we're going to wrap up this segment. When we come back after the break, I'm going to continue this conversation with Dr. Larson. Uh, We're going to go into what are they doing to help their staff. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're also going to talk about this question of supplies. And you heard the doctor mention supply chain. So when we come back from the break, we'll get into some of that. Stay tuned. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate broadcasting here on the HI Radio Network, coast to coast across the USA. We'll be right back after the break.
Welcome back to the Listening to America's Healthcare Advocacy Show, broadcasting coast to coast from my kitchen. That's right. Mark Rose, my producers, mixing this in the studio at home. Joining us by phone is Dr. Mark Larson, the Operations Section Chief of Emergency Medicine, doctor, uh, physician uh, overseeing the entire St. Luke's healthcare system response to COVID-19. Uh, we're looking at about nine hospitals here. It's by far the largest medical group in and around the Kansas City metro. And why am I doing this? I'm doing it so I can kind of pull the curtain back and let you get some direct, unvarnished, clear information and understand and appreciate what these people on the front lines are doing. The risk they're taking, the difficulty with what they're doing, the hours they're working, all these things they're doing because truly people, and I don't throw this word around lightly, but these people are truly heroes in today. First of all, to be volunteering to go in there and work in those hospitals and in and around the facilities where they know people have this virus and it's so highly contagious. It truly is. It takes a lot of courage to do that. And I have an enormous amount of respect for all these folks and what they are doing. Dr. Let's start off with, and obviously we're here in the Midwest. Things are a lot different than they are on the East Coast. Um, our numbers are significantly lower, obviously, but they are going to continue to go up at least for the next two to three weeks. So what, what are you seeing in, in terms of patients presenting throughout the St. Luke's healthcare system? St. Luke's has been pretty aggressive in our testing processes, even from the beginning. Um, so we've been trying to get out there and identify early who has this disease process so that if they do get worse and they come back and they get admitted to the hospital, we're prepared and we have stood up our level of protective uh, equipment you know, from the get-go. We've been going, I think, above and beyond what the CDC's recommendation was for testing even from the early state and sending to private labs. We've now developed our own and our testing in-house um, patients, so we're able to get our turnaround on testing a lot faster. The disease is here. It's everywhere around the country. It's maybe not as prevalent here as it is on the coast, but part of that is because of lack of testing. The um, stable health system right now, we have about 25 patients inpatient in our hospital uh, across all of our metropolitan hospitals, and we have probably twice that number that are being what we call patients under investigation. So the disease is here. We're prepared for it. We haven't hit that that major onslaught, if you will, like they have on the coast, especially up in New York State and New York City. But we're preparing for that, and that's why the our preparation plans, I think, are so important. Okay, so you, you mentioned supply chain, and unfortunately, the national media seems to really be fixated on this issue and in a very negative way, and, and they seem to go out of their way to create... I, I heard Dr. Deborah Bridge, and I have enormous respect for her. I, I heard her tell one of these reporters that they need to stop scaring the American public with some of these stories they're putting out there. Talk a little bit about the supply chain issue. What, what, how are you guys, are you getting what you need, masks, face shields, protective clothing, uh, the ventilator question? Kind of go through that a little bit and what have you been able to access? Again, I think we've, I think our staff will tell you we've done a pretty decent job of making sure that they have the appropriate level of personal protective equipment that they need. Um, and it's a graded response based on the risk factors of the patient, potentially even the risk factors of the staff. So not every patient that comes in poses the same risk. An ankle sprain in the ER is a lot different than a person in respiratory failure. So we tailor the level of equipment that we use based on their risk and our staff's risk. We are not in a rationing position for personal protective equipment. We're in a conserving model. We have it. We have plenty of it for right now. Our concern is what happens if the supply chain drives up, and that's the unknown. So right now we have adequate supplies for dealing with our staff for a foreseeable future. But our concern is that if we get to that point where we do have an influx like what you're seeing in New York State and New York City, that, that our supplies, we would not be able to restock. So we are conserving. We're not rationing. We have supplies that are needed. We also try to make sure that we educate our staff on why we do what we're doing. Uh, this afternoon, I'm actually going to film a little video for our medical staff and our nursing staff on why we use the level of mass that we use. 
based on CDC recommendations and just based on the science of droplet and airborne precautions. So I think educating the staff to make sure that they understand why these decisions are made is a great uh, way of making sure that they feel safe and protected. Because you're right, our frontline staff are the most valuable resource that we have. Just this week, Dr. Frankie Gabrin was an emergency physician who passed away this week uh, in New York City deciding that they didn't have adequate PPE. I don't know the specifics of what happened, but I want to make sure that that doesn't have to happen to us, any of my docs, my nursing staff, or anybody that would potentially be at risk. Right now, we're doing okay. Uh, we keep a very, very close eye on our supply chain, but it is something that we watch very closely. That's really good for people to hear, and I think it's pretty obvious that you know, there are a myriad of problems in New York just by the sheer volume of what they're dealing with and how much the, the task force in, in Washington is trying to get as much of them as possible. Regarding your supply chain, though, are your vendors telling you that they're going to have the masks, the ventilators, the various uh, types of equipment you're going to need, you know, as they're ramping up. Because we hear, I, I think I heard Walmart yesterday with something like 3 million masks. You've got companies like MyPillow out there now making masks. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. You know, it was a very interesting uh, story again in the Wall Street Journal the other day about how this country has a habit of starting slow, whether it's Pearl Harbor or whether it's the, the, the virus in, in 1918. But once we ramp up and get rolling, then we're like a dump truck going downhill. I mean, you know, so so talk to me a bit about what you're seeing. Are your vendors telling you, hey, we're going to have it in three weeks or two weeks? Or are you getting other people reaching out to you? And do you have the ability to go to some of these other sources, like the people at MyPillow, for instance, if you wanted to buy yeah. masks? And how does all that work, doctor? Well, I think it's also important to understand that a mask is not a mask is not a mask. There's different levels of masks. There's level one, level three masks, and then there's N95 respirators. Uh, and so when we start using the term mask, there's the home zone mask uh, and that people have talked about, and then and N95. N95s are the masks that I think people are most uh, worried about, and the technical specifications for those are very high, and they have to be uh, what we call fit tested. So every manufacturer's masks are a little bit different, and they have to be tested on each uh, staff member. Uh, we put a little hood on them. We spray a chemical around their face to see if they can smell it. And they have to be fit tested for that specific brand of mask. So wow. as we have different resources coming in, um, you know, currently St. Louis Health System, we're using about four different brands of N95 masks. But that means every employee has to be tested with each and every one of those masks in order to make sure that it's effective against keeping out those airborne particles or those aerosolized particles. So uh, what we have done as a health system is we've tried to do what we call bulk buys. I don't want to get 5,000 masks and have to fit all of my staff and then do it again for somebody else. We've tried to reach out to our supply chain uh, and partner with the health systems around the metropolitan area and say, we'll do a, a purchase of you know, X number of million masks and we'll, we'll have the buying power of our metropolitan area so we can kind of standardize what we're using either by hospital or by region because that fit testing aspect is, is quite a challenge. Yeah, I had no idea. That's really interesting for people to hear that. It's not just put a mask on to go to work. This is, that's fascinating is that, that you have to test it that way in order to see if they are, in fact, effective. So let's talk a bit about, you know, your support for your staff. I know you're providing meals to your staff. You know, how are you helping if, if they're working 12-hour days or whatever, you know, are they going back and forth at home? Are they trying to stay in hotels? Obviously, there's a lot of hotel space right now. Are they trying to stay in hotels close to the hospitals? How is that all sorting out? So we've identified a process and partner with local hotels around the region, next to each of our facilities, where we can identify high-risk staff. Uh, either that they have uh, high-risk exposures or they have high-risk family members at home, and we don't want them going back and forth and exposing and increasing the risk to their family members. So we're partnering with local hotels and, and uh, in our and our staff to make sure that we do everything we can to keep them safe. Um, so we do have a process in place for that. Now, the other thing I'll say is the community has just been unbelievable. Uh, signs placed at the hospitals saying how much they appreciate the staff, people from local businesses bringing food and donuts to our units, uh, the outpouring of support and the recognition for what these frontline care providers 
uh, from the nursing staff to the technicians, the respiratory therapists, to the environmental service workers who have to go in and clean these rooms. Every single one of those people is so important to us. And we want to treat them all the same and make sure they all have adequate level of personal protective equipment. Because any single one of those people that we lose, that's an important cog in our wheel. And the healthcare system doesn't work if we start losing those, those essential employees. You know, that's interesting because we don't think about that. You know, when I think of it, I think of nurses, doctors, technicians, dialysis technicians, you know, x-ray techs, those kind of people. But you make a very interesting point. Without the, without the, the, the staff going in to clean the rooms and, and empty the trash and do the various things that have to be done, the hospital can't function. So it is an all-encompassing uh, efforts by everybody. We're coming up on the break, folks. We're going to come back after the break and continue this fascinating conversation uh, with Dr. Mark Larson from St. Louis Healthcare System. Stay tuned. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate broadcasting here on the HIA radio network, coast to coast across the USA. We'll be right back with more after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast across the USA here on the HIA Radio Network. By the way, as I mentioned in the first segment, if you are a person who's been laid off or lost your health insurance or need help with it, you can call 877-385-2224. Operators are standing by. They will take that call um, or you'll go to the voicemail, one of the two, if, if they're swamped. And the folks at RPS BBDI will get back to you um, in the next day or so. So we've had a number of people call where this is happening. Um, I told the story about the teacher. Surprising, uh, she wound up getting a $1,700 subsidy, which paid for the health insurance for her entire family. So there is help out there. You need to know that. If you need help, um, call the folks at um, RPS Benefits by Design at 877-385-2224. Doctor, let's go back to this a minute uh, with, and we'll kind of segue into the general public issue, but we we talked about, you know, some of the things you're doing to help your teammates that, you know, don't want to bring this stuff home. You know, I read read a story uh, about a, um, a, a doctor who was literally on his front porch taking his clothes off and throwing them in a plastic bag and then going inside the house. So, are, 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 you know, talk a little bit about what you all are doing and the stress this is putting on families, um, you know, in terms of that kind of an issue. People are, are literally, are you going in the garage and changing clothes when you get home? Yeah, I would, I would bet if you're a survey healthcare worker, the people working in the hospital right now, that the vast majority of those people aren't wearing their scrubs or their uh, hospital attire into their house and coming in contact with their kids. So I think that's probably more the norm than the exception. And I think, like you touched on, I think the, the stress that this brings to families, obviously the healthcare workers, the physicians and staff are under stress at work, but the silent victims here, I think, are their family members at home, their kids, their wives. They're isolated at home, schools out. Their spouses are potentially having to, to pick up the extra uh, work at home. You know, in my family in particular, uh, my wife's also a physician. She works at the Children's Hospital. So we have three young children, and I can't use my parents. I have to use, uh, I do have to use a nanny. But the stress that it, it goes on the family members and the kids, I think those are the silent victims in this process. for not getting to see their mom and their dad because they're, they're needing to be there working in the hospital. I think yeah, that's yeah. And people maybe don't recognize. 
you know, we've got uh, we've got four grandchildren, and, and none of our uh, none of our our kids are, are medical professionals. So just having them all at home, um, and and one of our daughters got sick with pneumonia, and it was just a nightmare uh, because they're you know you've got the children right there underfoot the whole time, and I can only mm-hmm. imagine what this is like for the providers because you're the hours you're working, um, and and like you said. <laughs> grandparents can't come over and take care of the, of the children. That's not, you know, you, you can't do that now. There's, there's too much yeah. going on out there for that to happen. It makes sense of it. So it's interesting to hear. Yeah, let's, let's segue from that into this whole discussion about masks and gloves. You know, I, I mentioned, you know, we were on the break off air there that I was, I was at Whole Foods yesterday uh, getting some groceries and you've got people wearing masks and gloves, you know, around the store and, and, how effective and how sensible is that? I mean, I, I, I've heard all kinds of opinions on this. I, I, I mentioned off there that I'd watched a long video by one of the frontline ER docs in New York City, um, and he went through this, and he said basically the masks are that we're, that we're that people are wearing in these stores and out in public are very little value. The only value is to keep you from touching your face. That's and he also said the same thing basically about the glove issue. So talk a little bit about that and how, you know, is that something people should really be doing or or is it even effective? So I'm going to do for you guys what I'm going to do for our staff as well is not just tell you what you need to do, but why we need to do it. Because uh, I think, you know, you can hear from anybody and telling you what to do, but if you understand why it's important, I think that that goes a long way. So the virus is spread mostly by droplet precautions, right? Someone coughs or sneezes, and those droplets spread through the air and then drop on whatever is in that area. The fruit at the grocery store, the doorknobs, the handles, anything you touch, this virus can live on those for extended periods of time. The masks that uh, we're wearing in the hospital environment, if I'm in proximity to somebody and they sneeze a cough, it's protecting me from inhaling that directly. So the, that's the reason why the masks are so important to be used in a healthcare setting when people are coughing, sneezing. And then when we're doing other procedures, this may make this more uh, what we consider an airborne, uh, putting somebody on a ventilator or doing a procedure on somebody. The important thing is that if you're out at Whole Foods or at a grocery store, that you don't know who was there before you and who potentially uh, had coughed, sneezed, anything in their hands and touched whatever is out there. So we've heard time and time again, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And that truly is the number one way of making sure that we keep ourselves and our population safe. Staying away from people, socially uh, distancing, uh, so you're not around a large amount of people, staying home, uh, but then washing your hands because you touch that doorknob, you touch that fruit that someone maybe has already contaminated, you know, you need to wash your hands. Uh, and then keep your hands away from your face. Uh, we all, it's, it's amazing if you realize when it first came out, uh, how many times I uh, subconsciously had my hands up by my face. And for me just to have to hold my hands down by my side so that I'm not constantly touching my face is quite a challenge. But it's really things like that. And if people understand why that is so important, I think people will, will help bend that curve on, on doing the good hand hygiene and, you know, increasing our social distancing uh, and making sure that we can flatten that curve. You know, it's very interesting because Dr. Deborah Bricks talks about this a lot, and so does Dr. Fauci. 
that they that the, the single biggest thing we can do, and you just talked about it, the bend back curve is take this seriously, take the social distancing seriously, wash your hands, take that part seriously. That is truly the greatest um, uh, tool we have to bend this curve down, is it not? Absolutely. And I think that uh, it's the education. Again, we're, we're stubborn people at times, and people can tell us what to do, but if we know the why, then I think that helps. And so I think we need to continue to focus on why this is so important. You know, the, the peak of that curve will overwhelm our healthcare systems as what you've seen in, in the highly dense communities like New York and Seattle, where it's in Louisiana, where it's become rampant. If we can spread that out and flatten that out, it allows our healthcare resources to be extended to, for our supply chain to be replenished. It's really, really an important thing that we have to focus on. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to hear that. I'm going to ask you another question. This is, and this may be my own paranoia. So, if you if you choose to laugh, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> when I bring home groceries, all the fruits and vegetables get washed in a solution. And any package that comes in this house, I wipe it down with with the Clorox um, candy wipe. And I also wipe down the steering wheel in my truck uh, anytime I go out or come back. And I do the same thing to the doorknobs um, and, and, and the rails uh, coming in the house. Um, so is that something as an additional precaution that makes sense for people to do? I think it makes sense. Uh, I don't want to spread paranoia. But I think, again, you want to think logically. If you you can socially isolate your whole family, but if one person is going out and becomes infected or becomes a carrier uh, and is bringing that infected fruit or boxes or whatever into your house, um, then I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to. I keep alcohol hand wash in my pocket if I have to run to the grocery store. The very first thing I do before I touch my phone or anything else like that is I, I alcohol my hand. Um, so... I think you're exactly right. That I think I'd rather people focus on being too precautious uh, than than being too uh, than, than not enough. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting because I know I, I I mean it literally sounds crazy, but when I go down and get the newspaper in the morning and come back up because it's in a plastic wrapper, I throw the wrapper out, wash my hands, and I, I and this sounds even crazy, but I actually wipe the paper off. I mean, I. You know, because what you say, you read the information that this virus can survive on all these different surfaces for various amounts of time. Some of them, you know, two, three, four hours, some of them a lot longer than that. Um, it doesn't hurt to be overly cautious. And I'm, you know, chronologically challenged. I'm 70 years old and I'm in a high risk category because I have asthma and so does my wife. So for us, you know, it, 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 being super cautious just seems to be the right thing to do. I think you're right. I mean, I think there's very little drawback to doing that. And if you have the supplies, obviously, I don't want people running out. And uh, I, Well, there's not many supplies left on the shops anyways. But washing your hands doesn't take much in the way of supplies. It takes water and a towel. So I'm just making sure that we're, we're being smart and trying to protect ourselves and, and really listen to the, the uh, guidance given to you by the CDC and Dr. Fauci. Uh, I think that's that's really important information. Yeah, it is. there's a lot of good information, important information coming out of CDC. We're going to wrap it up in this segment, folks. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate, broadcasting here on the HI Radio Network, coast to coast, live from my kitchen. We'll be right back with more after the break. 
Welcome back. You're listening to America's Healthcare Advocate Show, broadcasting coast to coast, like I said, live from my kitchen here in Kansas City. Uh, and obviously the show is about the coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, joining me on air today, we're very fortunate to have him, Dr. Mark Larson, who is the uh, St. Luke's Healthcare System Operations Section Chief Emergency Medicine Physician. He is an ER doc, and he is the man who's running the show at St. Luke's with all of his great associates and teammates uh, as they mount their campaign against COVID-19. And I think this has been a, a tremendous opportunity for all of you out there to listen to all the things that are going on. And, you know, I'm using the, the hospitals here in Kansas City because I obviously have great relationships here. But understand that this is what's going on across the country. This is what you're seeing across the country as hospitals prepare for this um, and, and the, the degree of difficulty, dedication, all the rest of it that they're showing uh, in, in, in dealing with these issues and, and making sure that there are people there to take care of us um, if we are unfortunate enough to get this uh, particular virus. All right, let, let's talk, doctor, a little bit about telemedicine because I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I've, I've been in the insurance world for 25 years doing employee benefits and all the rest of it. And telemedicine is something that's always, it's been there, but it's very hard to get people to do it. And I think one of the good things that's going to come out of this situation across the country is people are starting to use telemedicine now uh, and and how talk a little bit about how effective that is and who you're talking to when you do telemedicine doctor yeah so historically telemedicine has been used as an outreach program from urban centers out to more rural areas have access to specialty care and uh you know things like stroke care and there have been restrictions uh from insurance companies and cms on, on when it can be used in an urban setting to treat patients in our in our metropolitan area. And like you said, with some of these waivers granted by CMS and the insurance companies releasing or relaxing their restrictions, this is now a tool that we're able to use to keep people at home where they're more safe and not at risk of getting out and exposed. So we're using telemedicine across pretty much all of our platforms right now from an ambulatory outpatient setting. So if you have a visit with your cardiologist or your primary care doctor, you can do those via telemedicine. We're also using them as an urgent care type platform with something we call Techniques 24-7, which uses a platform called MD Live, which is a national platform. So we can actually schedule these visits. And so if you have a concern and you say, I need to, I need, I want to talk to somebody about this. I need, I need to see a physician or a nurse practitioner. You can do telemedicine visits from home via whatever platform you use and they can give you your screening. We can even order testing over the, uh, through the, the platform if needed as well. So it's a great opportunity for us to provide that care to people while they're in their house. And this is something that hopefully will stick and will some of these waivers that have been granted will become permanent um, because I really think there's a lot of benefit that we can use. We're even going so far as to be able to use it in our hospital to take care of our, of our patients that are COVID positive in the uh, emergency department or in the hospital. We have to obviously have one person in at bedside in order to put an IV in or to perform a treatment. But do we need to have two or three, or can they remote in via telemedicine and see that patient remotely? So we're setting up uh, robots or telemedicine bots in each of our hospitals to try to add that extra layer of protection so that we can maximize the care that we can provide and maximize the protection that we can provide our, our providers as well. Yeah, and I want to make sure people understand. I'm sitting here actually looking at a press release from Blue Cross and Blue Shield 
of Kansas City. And this is every carrier out there is doing this right now. All cost sharing for COVID-19 testing, including related office visits and related services, is waived. There is, there, there is no cost sharing. So using that telemedicine uh, uh, portal, and, and every carrier has got it. You can go up on your, your carrier's website if you're in Medicare and you've got Medicare Part A and B. You can go up on the Medicare website if you've got Medicaid. You can do the same thing. So these telemedicine uh, uh, opportunities are there. These doctors are trained specifically to deal with these issues. If you're looking, you know, if you think you may be or presenting symptoms for COVID-19, they can certainly do that. I know they put training in place for these doctors to be able to do this so they know what they're doing um, and they know the symptoms of what they're dealing with. But I think it's really important people understand that is a tremendous tool and it's a tool that they need to use. Doctor, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about why you know, I, I I told you on the break when we were off air that I've seen more people. I live in an in an urban neighborhood in the middle of the city, um, and I don't think I've ever seen so many people out walking their dogs, walking with their kids. You know, fathers out in the middle of the day with two or three children. It is. Why is it important for people to get out and 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 not just stay cooped up in their houses? Yeah, I think there's there's you know obviously there's health benefits to it. There's emotional and mental health benefits to it as well. This is, uh, I think the mental health aspect is important to consider as well. Being isolated socially, we are naturally social beings. And to be isolated at home is, is a challenge for us. So I think being able to get outside and enjoy some of that fresh air and uh, get some activity is, is, has, you know, major health benefits. I think we need to do it, but we need to be smart about it. I'm encouraged as well by seeing so many people out on walks. I still think you need to keep your social distancing in effect and try to make sure that you keep that gap between people. But also when you're outside and there's a natural breeze, that risk of person-to-person transmission from airborne, from coughing, is way, way diminished compared to if you're inside and there's not as much airflow. So there's many benefits of being outside, getting that walk, and making sure that you, uh, you, you have a little bit of social contact and exercise. You know, tying in with the telemedicine side, there's also, you know, make sure that you FaceTime your, your parents or your grandparents and you get that emotional connection for the grandkids. Um, I think that's really important. We're using some of those platforms, even um, in our hospital, we have a no visitor policy in effect right now, but we have uh, members of our senior living center that are FaceTiming their, their families on a daily basis. We have senior member of our, one of our senior living centers whose wife comes to the window every single day and they look at each other and kind of talk through the window because they can't come in contact with each other because of the increased risk. So using telemedicine, to have that emotional connection to your family members, as well as having some ability to get outside and, and, and still see people is really good for your physical and mental and emotional health. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming on the end of the show here, and I just want to take a moment to thank you for doing this. You, you all are extremely busy right now. I, I don't even want to guess the hours you're probably working. But I think what you did today in educating our audience and letting them hear what's going on uh, is extremely valuable. I hope uh, you'll have time enough to come back and do this again. Um, and hopefully things will uh, start to slow down here and we'll, we'll start to bend that curve that we're all talking about. So, Dr. Larson, thank you very much. We greatly appreciate your time and your effort. Ladies and gentlemen, now I leave you with this thought from Dr. Martin Luther King. Americans must learn to live together as brothers and sisters or we will surely perish together as fools. That advice could never have been better. Thank you for listening to America's Healthcare Advocate broadcasting here on the HI Radio Network, coast to coast across the USA. Goodbye, America. Baby. 
love struck, baby. You got me love struck, baby. 